Greetings, friend. Today, we will be continuing from where we left off. So it would be great if you can keep your Bibles open at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25, and follow along as we work through the text. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to hear your words carefully today. Help us to consider them and help us to submit to you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. There was once two elderly sisters. Let's call them Grace and Nancy. Between Grace and Nancy, they had one car that they take turns driving to get their chores done. One day, Grace drives them around, and another day, Nancy drives them around. So one day, they went to the supermarket. They did their grocery shoppings and then got into the car and went home. On the way home, Grace is starting to panic a little because Nancy had run through a red light. More than that, Nancy has been talking non-stop. Suddenly, the same thing happened again. Nancy passed through a second red light without stopping and she is just talking non-stop. As they approached the next red light and Nancy showed no indication of stopping and was just talking on and on, Grace shouted out, Stop! It's a red light! Immediately, Nancy stepped on the brakes hard and the car came to a sudden stop. Nancy then looked at Grace and said, I thought you were driving today. Friends, throughout the passage so far, we have been seeing how Peter has been giving us the assurance that we need. He has basically been telling us that God is in the driver's seat. Peter told us about how God has been working out our salvation by causing us to be born again and is guarding our inheritance so that we can be assured of receiving it. God sent Christ to die on that cross for our sins so that ultimately, despite our circumstances, despite how the world rejects us and treats us as aliens and sojourners, we have hope. And our hope then is in what God does. Just from what we have seen from Peter so far, we get this impression that we are like little children being driven to school by our parents. We just sit in the car and parents will send us to school safely. Yet today then, Peter points out that we too have to drive. Not for our salvation, of course. That is still God's word. But our salvation prompts a response. And the passage for today shows us how that response looks like, especially in the different contexts we can find ourselves in. So in other words, our passage today shows us what it looks like for us to take the wheel and drive if we know that God has saved us. So let's look at the passage carefully and hope that instead of driving carefully, we don't end up like Nancy and drive through the red lights without even realizing that we should be controlling the car. So where does Peter begin as he seeks to bring this aspect of his message to us? Peter begins in verse 11, and he begins by reminding us who we are in relation to the world. We should internalize and understand that we are sojourners, we are exiles, and don't belong here in this world. This world that we live in, our properties, our careers, our achievements, these are temporary things that are not our real goal. Instead, we are travelers on the way home for now. Seeking the kingdom of God is our goal. But many of us forget that, don't we? Our desires tend to be for our security and comforts in this world, even if that sometimes means compromising on our obedience to God. We desire money and resort to underhanded sinful ways. 
We become consumers who don't care about the damage our consumerism causes, child labor, worker exploitation, pollution, and so much more. We desire fleshly physical satisfaction. So we turn to pornography, affairs outside of marriage. Why, even in the good things, we wage war against God's commands and desires. We love our family. So we hate those who harm them. And you want to destroy them instead of seeking to show them grace. So in these and many other ways, we can see that what Peter says is true. We are driven by the passions of our flesh. And what we really need to see is that these things are not just unhelpful things, but even worse. These desires are waging a war against our very soul. The redeemed and regenerated Christian is already a new man with a soul that longs to do what pleases God. It is the flesh that confuses us and leads us to do that which our soul fights against. So remember that when you think that doing this sin or that sin is going to satisfy you. What is happening in actuality is that you are doing violence to your own soul. Sin is not merely a behavioral or minor problem. It actually affects you in the deepest part of yourself. So fight sin, but not just for your soul's sake, because Peter next shows us that there is something bigger at stake than that in verse 12. Here, Peter reminds us to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, why is this important? Now, Peter assumes that the unbelieving Gentiles will speak against the readers as evildoers. And that's because they are fighting the flesh and its desires, dying to sin, seeking to do what is right. And as you do that, the world will consider you as evildoers. We see that so clearly today, isn't it? If you say that God has defined that marriage is between man and a woman, you are immediately labeled as intolerant, a bigot. If you tell people that Jesus is the only way to the Father, you do not respect other religions. They will then call you a fundamentalist, which by the way doesn't mean you like fun. In all these things, even as you hold on to the tenets of Christianity, you will be called evildoers. Yet Peter calls the Christians to keep their conducts honorable so that the very world that rejects them will see their good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But what is this day of visitation that Peter talks about here? And what does it mean for non-Christians to give glory to God on that day? Are they glorifying God because they come to salvation? Or are they giving glory to God in acknowledging that they have been wrong? Interesting, isn't it? Now, we see the term the day of visitation used in Isaiah, and even by Jesus himself in Luke chapter 19. The day of visitation, according to Isaiah chapter 10 verse 3, is the day when God, Yahweh himself, will visit them and respond to them as they have responded to him. And we can see here that the day of visitation is talking about the day of judgment that will come to the unbelieving Israel. In Luke chapter 19 verse 44, however, as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he prophesied that it will be destroyed, as they have not recognized this day of visitation when it came upon them. This just then points us to the fact that Jesus is saying 
God did visit Jerusalem, but the people did not realize it and responded wrongly, and now can only await the judgment that is to come. If you think about it, Jesus is absolutely right, isn't he? God did come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, clothed in human flesh as Jesus, as God, tabernacle among his people, bringing the words of salvation to them, and they rejected him. So they have rejected God when he visited them, and so they are to come under judgment. So actually you can see that in both cases, the usage of the term day of visitation is consistent but contextualized. It is the day when God himself comes, and God comes with both salvation and judgment, salvation to the faithful and judgment to those who reject him. So Jesus wept because God came bringing salvation and they rejected him. Isaiah is warning the people that their rejection of God will bring terrible judgment on them on that day. So what does Peter mean here in this context? I believe that it is twofold. One is a foreshadowing and the other is the fullness of this day. Let me explain. In one real sense, for this world that rejects the message of the gospel and rejects those who bring this message and calls them sojourners and aliens, there may come a time when through the preaching of these exiled people, the gospel message comes to them powerfully and clearly and challenges them to respond as it is preached to, to them through these faithful messengers of God. The word and the spirit works powerfully then to call the listeners to the Father who reveal his perfect standard of righteousness and their sinfulness before them. In one sense then, and we can say, that God himself comes to offer salvation when this happens. The day of visitation then is in one sense, the day that comes to them when the gospel is presented. And this could be seen in the sense of a personal challenge of the gospel in their hearts, or even a city-wide revival of Christianity as we have seen in history. For example, in China, some will accept and find salvation, but some will reject, as Jerusalem did when Jesus came to them with that message. So in the same way that we don't immediately see salvation when we accept Christ, because we're still in the flesh, waiting for the day to come, in that same way also, for those who reject the gospel, they too won't see the judgment yet at that point of time, and instead unknowingly, they await the appointed day of destruction to come. The day of the final visitation, which is the second coming of Christ, as seen in the book of Revelation. This day of visitation is the complete fulfillment then of both God's salvation and God's judgment. God will come on that day to bring those appointed to eternal life to salvation and judge those who have not repented of their sins. So for those who repent and come to salvation, what will they say then of the Christians that they had originally rejected as evildoers, but now have become brothers and sisters because they accept the message of the gospel? They will now see the very Christians whom they have called evil and rejected earlier have actually been persevering to bring the gospel to them. And at this point then, they will praise the very ones that they used to call evildoers. And now, seeing their good deeds in obeying God, and in bringing the gospel to them, despite the persecution, they will praise God because he has visited them through the message of the gospel.
and they have come to salvation. But what about those who reject the message? Well, they will live on rejecting God even to the very end of their lives. And for them, on that final day of visitation, when Christ returns to judge, Scripture tells us that every knee shall bend and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But what a confession this is, because this is the confession of those who have rejected the very Lord that the knees are now bending to. They are not confessing here to accept Jesus on the second coming. They are confessing that they have made a terrible mistake and now come before that very Jesus who is Lord for their eternal judgment. Even as they see this, they will look back to the redeemed Christians who are saved, the very ones that they call evildoer and see that all they did was for their good, for their salvation, and God had been kind to them. They won't be able to find fault in them if the Christians have been faithful to God in their actions towards them. But the time for repentance is over and there is only to be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. So as Christians persevere in following God, even despite being called evildoers, they are to be faithful, to not repay evil with evil, even if they suffer and then continue to preach the gospel. So one way or another, the Christians will be vindicated. Either as those who reject them come to the gospel and praise them, or on the day of Christ's return, when they acknowledge that the Christians have acted for their good despite being vilified by them. So Peter is saying here, be faithful and respond with love and compassion, even if you are hurt by those who reject you, so that God will ultimately be glorified. Having said these heavy things to the listeners, Peter knows that he has to give them practical advice on how this faithfulness that he is calling them to live out looks like. So how does it look like to persevere to do good when you are rejected and called evildoers? He shows us one case study, an example in verse 13 to 17. Here, in this example, he names the emperor and the governors, both pagans, both persecutors of the Christians. But instead of condemning them, Peter shockingly tells his readers instead to be subject to every human institution. The reason for this is because it is God himself who has appointed them to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Whether they are good or bad, we have to submit. And if we rebel against them, we are rebelling against God. Christians are called here then to do good in this context. Peter calls them to be good citizens who bring peace and prosperity even as they are wronged and called evil so that on the day of visitation, these people will acknowledge the goodness of the Christians and give glory to God one way or another. So that by doing good, they silence any legitimate reason for these ignorant ones to accuse the Christians of any wrongdoings. We do this not because we fear the authority, or are seeking to curry favor, we do this in obedience to God. So what does that look like for us today then? That would mean obeying the government in all the things that do not go against God's command. That would mean being peaceable, obeying the authorities, even if we don't agree with their decisions, as long as these things do not dishonor God. We can't use excuses and say that we want to incite civil unrest because we didn't vote for this government. 
We can't make excuses and say, we want to fight violence with violence. We are called to honour everyone, love all believers, and out of the honour and reverence we give to God, we respond to God's will by honouring the rulers. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we can't disagree or protest injustices. But what we must do must be done in a peaceable manner within the system of the laws that govern the country. We must play by the rules, even if they do not, so that no fault can be found in us on that day of visitation. Next then, we see in verse 18 to 20 something even more shocking. Peter now takes the example of the slave who submits to the master. Now, the ESV translates this as servants to soften it a little, but the Greek word refers to household slaves who are bound by contract to serve their master. Now, of course, we can point out that slavery, as it existed back then, is very different than the race-based slavery that we know of today. Back then, it was a contractual obligation, and slavery was considered a type of legitimate contract work that one can enter with honour. However, it still can be cruel. And I don't think we should soften the blow of what this passage is telling us. Peter isn't saying slavery is good, and he isn't affirming it. Rather, since he's showing us case studies, he brings up an extreme example to help us see how to apply this principle of honouring God even under such terrible circumstances. He is saying, even if you are a slave who is mistreated, perhaps being unjustly beaten and abused, you are still called to submit. Now, this is very hard, and we want to acknowledge that. But let us not forget that Jesus himself told his followers to turn the other cheek when slapped. In fact, it is the example of Jesus that Peter draws on to justify this heavy calling to Christians. In verse 21 to 24, he reminds his readers that just as Christ showed an example by his suffering, we too are to follow that example. Jesus, despite going through terrible injustice, did not commit any sin, while reviled, did not revile in return. He continued to submit even when the judges themselves were corrupt. So how can we not follow the master when we find ourselves in that similar situation? Peter then points to the hope we have in verse 24, that it is through this suffering that Jesus underwent that our sins are forgiven. So how can we find fault with what Christ did and say he did not do what was right? How can we say Christ did not model the right response that pleased God? To do so would be to deny our very salvation, isn't it? So for our convictions to match what God has done for us, we too must be willing to suffer for God's sake as Christ was. This is the principle that Peter brings up as he told us to submit and do good even when the world rejects us and calls us evildoers. So for the slave, even as he endures unfairness and abuse, if he does it for the sake of God, then it is a gracious thing. Again, this is a tough thing to accept, but we can't run away from this because scripture is clear. However, this does not mean that we don't seek justice when abused and bullied. What Peter is saying is that if you 
other one who is unjustly treated. Your role then is to suffer for God's sake and do good and not seek vengeance. You are not to take the law into your own hands. You are not to do something unchristian because you are mistreated. This does not mean, however, that such injustice should be left as it is. The others who are in power are not to accept this as a reality. They are not to pretend that everything is fine. No, no, no. Rather, the point is that this is exactly something that Peter has already pointed out. In verse 14, Peter mentions those in power. It is their job to do good, punish the evildoers, and bring justice. Failure to do that is a fault that will be leaving on them. Unjust masters will be punished, but by God and not by the slave that they were unjust to. So as we trust in God, we show our dependency on him, our faith in him, and on that day of visitation, God will be glorified by our willingness to endure evil for his sake. So to tie this in, Peter reminds the Christian in verse 25 that once we were lost like straying sheep but have now returned to Jesus, who is the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. We are able to do all these things. We are able to endure all these things. We are able to suffer for the sake of the gospel because we have returned to Jesus, who is our shepherd and overseer, who strengthens us and enables us to persevere. Traditionally at this point, I will say some words to encourage you to live according to the preached word. But for a change today, let me end instead with an excerpt from a historical document. From a letter from Diognetus, sorry, from letter to Diognetus that was written as Christian testimony to how Christians lived just one generation after the apostles. Here is what it says. They dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. They bear their share in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardships as strangers. They marry like all other men, and they beget children, but they do not cast away their offsprings. They have their meals in common, but not their wives. They find themselves in the flesh, yet they live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established law and they surpass the laws in their own lives. They love all men and they are persecuted by all. Friends, ask yourself, does your life look like this? If it doesn't then, why is it not? What is lacking? Trust in God. Live for Him. Fight the flesh. Glorify God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, teach us to be able to endure evil, to submit to authority, to put our trust in you despite going through difficulties. Lord, you are the one that will bring justice. And we pray that those that you have set in power above us, the authorities, that they would be those who bring justice, comment which is good, and rebuke that which is evil. But ultimately, Father, we know that we can put our trust in you because you are the one who brings true and absolute justice on that day of visitation when Christ comes to save and to judge. 
So help us to trust in you and respond rightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.